As a family, we used to, uh, when our children were younger, have a blessing box. And from time to time, when God would bless us, we would record those blessings on a piece of paper and stick them in the box. And then we would open those every once in a while and read them and just remember the good things that God has done for us. I remember on one occasion that uh, we uh, wrote a blessing down and put it in the box. This came from our son David, who was uh, playing in the stands at Marquette Stadium. And um, he jumped off the stands and landed on a two-before with a nail in it. And it, you know, did what you would expect it to do in his foot. And after things settled down, he said, uh, we, I have a blessing for the blessing box. There wasn't two nails in that two-before. <laughs> and so you, we can add pretty much anything, right, to the blessing box. We all have so many good things to be thankful for, don't we? Think of your life for a second. And I, that's all, all I mean, your life, your breathing. Is that not a gift from God? We have so many blessings that they are so often and regular that we lose sight of the fact that they're actually from God. The breath we are breathing right now is a blessing from God. Your ability to listen and see and hear is a blessing from God. Everything that you have, everything that I have, is a blessing from God. As we approach the text this morning, the author of Psalm 119 has discussed the benefits and means of pursuing holiness. The first stanza, the Aleph stanza, covers the benefits of pursuing holiness. And you'll see the uh, Hebrew letters Alpha, Aleph, or rather, and Beit on the overhead. These represent the titles of each of these particular stanzas. The first stanza, being the Aleph stanza, discusses the benefits of pursuing holiness. The second stanza, the, the Bet stanza, represents the means of pursuing holiness. And today we're going to dive into the third stanza, the Gimel stanza, that addresses what we're going to do about the pressures and trials and hardships that come if we're going to pursue holiness. This is what we discussed last week. If you're going to be a person who um, delightfully pursues God, who intently pursues holiness, you're going to encounter resistance from a world that doesn't like people that do that. You're going to encounter hardships. He lays those hardships out in this third and fourth stanza, but we're going to go into the first verse of the third stanza, verse 17, uh, to start to unpack this all-important stanza. How is it that a Christian is going to be able to navigate the Christian life while receiving all this pressure from the world and maintain a godly attitude? Maintain a joyful attitude. And so listen as I read verse 17 again from the third stanza. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. These words were written by a battle-weary believer dealing with the trials that all of us face if we're going to follow Christ. He's been alienated. This author has been slandered. He's been humiliated. And these things bring on sorrow. And so what's he do? He reaches out to God for help, just like you and I should do. So if you're going to make your life a pursuit of God, you're going to find yourselves experiencing similar trials as this man and needing lots of prayer, as you'll see in this stanza. 
What I want you to see this morning is that the, the successful navigation of hardship depends on how we approach it. The successful navigation of hardship depends on how we approach it. Let me give you the first observation from this verse. I think there is an essential perspective that we must have. And you'll see it there in the first line. Deal bountifully with your servant. Uh, I don't want to presume anything. And I've learned that presumption can keep a pastor from saying important things that should be regularly said. Uh, if you attend Sun Valley Church, for example, it would be easy for me to presume that you're a Christian, that you're a follower of Jesus. But I must not presume that. Uh, regular attendance and a winsome personality doesn't equal salvation. I must approach the scripture as I study, preparing for this moment with the important perspective of a pastor who is preaching to people who may not know Jesus. Um, so, so I must actively fight the urge to presume that you are saved or to presume that you're growing spiritually um, because I need, to, I need to be able to say the things that the Holy Spirit can use to penetrate even the hardest heart in the room. So I, I can't assume that everyone here understands or embraces the biblical teaching of proper relationships between God and us. Uh, our understanding in this, in this particular arena is very important. Some, con some people conceive of God as a harsh judge whom they must fear. Uh, there are probably people in this room right now who, who view him that way. Others think of God as a celestial genie or a celestial Santa Claus where you can just, you know, list out your requests and, and if you're a good boy, then God will supply those requests for you. Others believe that a relationship with God is impossible because he's impersonal. How can you know the impersonal? So understanding our relationship with God is critical. What does the Bible say about these things? Well, I think there's some important categories that, that we need to learn and understand if we're going to live a, a proper and growing Christian life. For example, there's this relationship between creator and created that we need to understand and embrace of life giver and life recipient, of savior and saved. Today, I want to talk about this particular relationship, master and slave. He says it in the first sentence, deal bountifully with your servant master and slave. So what is your perspective of the Christian life in this arena? Do you think that your perspective matches that of the apostles, the writers of scripture? I think that ought to be our goal. Remember Paul's view of himself as a slave of Christ in his letter to the Romans? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, right? called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, Remember his letter to his disciple Timothy, or Titus rather? Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul thought of himself as a slave of Christ. How about Jesus' half-brother James? I mean, this guy uh, grew up watching Jesus grow up. James did. James fought over the toys. Jesus just let him have them. All right? James saw this guy, Jesus, grow up, and he says this about him in the first sentence of his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you say, well, Pastor John, you're missing something very obvious here. It says servant, not slave. Well, that's what I want to address right now. Uh, the Greek word actually is doulos, and it is an important word that helps us understand our relationship to Jesus. Uh, the Greek word should be actually translated slave on every single occasion in the New Testament. Never servant. Doulos, according to the theological dictionary of the New Testament, means the following. All the words in this group, that is the doulos group, serve either to describe, and I'm quoting now from the theological dictionary in the New Testament, this group serve either to describe the status of a slave or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. The meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. The emphasis here is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he has to perform whether he likes or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. Doulos stresses the slave's dependence on his Lord. That is the case with every single usage of the word servant in your English Bible. It actually means slave. Now, Charles Spurgeon said this, where our King James versions softly put it servant, it really is bond slave. The early saints delighted to count themselves as Christ's absolute property, bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. Paul even went so far as to rejoice that he had the marks of his master branded on him, and he cries, let no, man, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was the end of all debate. He was the Lord's, and the marks of the scourges, the rods, and the stones were the broad arrow of the king which marked Paul's body as the property of the Lord Jesus. Now, if the saints of the old gloried in obeying Christ, I pray that you and I may feel that our first object in life is to obey our Lord Jesus Christ as well. End quote. So having a master-slave understanding of our relationship with God firmly established in our minds is, is helpful and I think necessary to understanding how we should think about this Christian life we're living, especially in view of the trials we'll be facing. Our, our proper understanding of this relationship helps us prioritize things in life, helps us live our lives out as God would have us to, helps us give, make decisions and give direction. Jesus made this clear. The Apostle Paul made this clear in numerous places, particularly in, in Romans 6, that everywhere, um, someone, everyone is always serving someone or something. That's what Paul and Jesus made clear. You cannot live without being a servant of something or someone. You either serve God or you serve sin. You either serve God or you serve man. You either serve God or you serve the worldly system. And some might sit here and say, well, no, I'm an independent contractor. No, you're not. If you're an independent contractor, you're serving self, right? Everybody serves somebody or something is the point of the New Testament. All the New Testament authors, what do they call Jesus? Lord Jesus. We've sung it this morning. You've talked about it in your small groups. The Lord Jesus told me this. The Lord said this in his word. I appreciate the Lord in such and such 
we all think of it in that way, but we generally don't attach the concept of slavery to our Lord. So the author of Psalm 119 views himself as a slave to God. The, the Hebrew language is what was used to write the original text here. But a long time ago, a bunch of Greeks got together and uh, translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, guess which word they used for the word servant in verse 17? Doulos. So the author of Psalm 119, verse 17, is conceiving of himself as a slave to Christ. And this author in Psalm 119, the New Testament authors throughout the scriptures, um, Paul, John, Peter, James, saw serving God as slaves was a great honor, a great joy. Um, the emperor, the uh, Christian emperor Constantine said that he counted it a greater honor to be a Christian than to be the head of the empire. So an important but often neglected element of the Christian life is that we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own, right? Didn't Paul say this to the Corinthian church? We have a responsibility to not only know God's word, but to obey it, to live it out. Being a Christian means obedience to your master. The, the original words of faith and obedience have the same root word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now that we're in Christ, guess what? We are slaves of Christ required by nature to follow our master. And, and to be clear, this isn't a dutiful service and a drudgery. It's a joyful service, a delight to those who have been rescued by God, our Savior, who have been freed from the slavery to sin and its ruthless taskmaster and brought from darkness to light. And so we joyfully follow Christ obediently. And I think this is an essential perspective, this master-slave perspective because of the world we live in unless we understand our relationship to God in this department and know whose we are we will constantly be struggling with simple decisions about every detail in life should I do this or not do this should I say this or not say this should I spend this time here or not spend it there should I use my money here or there we have all these questions that are simplified when we understand who is our master Knowing whom your master is and what his expectations are is essential to a satisfying, God-glorifying life of joy. So in what ways, to, to flesh this out a little bit, what ways does this master-slave relationship actually affect us? I want to give you a couple ideas to think about. Because our master is sovereign, all right, controlling all things, he orchestrates the details of our lives including when we were born, where we live, where we work, where we attend church, who we know. This is the foreordination of our master. And he does this for specific reasons. He, he does what he does, puts us where we are, gives us the gifts he's given us for the purpose of accomplishing his will in our life and the lives of those around us. And I think if you'll consider this for a moment, you'll see the massive ramifications of this. 
For example, you were not here this morning by accident. You are here by divine appointment. There are millions of people who aren't here. You are. Why? Because God foreordained in time past for you to be here. He has created some desire in the last 24 hours for you to wake up, show up, and be here with the rest of us. You remember the divine appointment that Jesus orchestrated in John 4? We spent a lot of time talking about that one. Jesus was walking with his disciples from Jerusalem to Galilee. And in between, there was a place that normal Jews would not walk through. All right? Samaria. There was a town in Samaria that, that was the home for the woman who showed up at the well. The, um, the woman of Sychar. But Jews didn't walk through that area. But Jesus said to his disciples, I must go to Sychar. Why? Because he had arranged in eternity past a divine appointment with the woman at the well in John 4. So he gets to Sychar on the perimeter of the village. There was the well. He sends his disciples into the city to get food, and he waits for his appointee to show up. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, sitting on the edge of the well, waiting for his appointment. And he wasn't disappointed. She showed up right on cue. And what did they talk about? The weather? Those lousy Samaritan baseball players that can never win a game? No. What did he talk about? The gospel, the kingdom. And lo and behold, this woman is converted right there on the spot and becomes the first evangelist in the New Testament. She goes back and tells her family about Jesus. And they all come running. And he shares the gospel with all of them. It was a divine appointment. Just like you being here this morning. Just like Esther in the Old Testament. You remember her situation. It, it is bizarre thinking the detail that God went to the trouble of producing. God made Esther so beautiful that she couldn't but have helped win the beauty pageant from which the king of the land chose his wife. So God foreordained in the DNA of Esther's parents that she would be chosen as the next queen so that she, you know the story, could save her people from a ruthless leader. Right? Mordecai, her uncle, even said this to her. Esther, you are here for such a time as this. He understood God's providence. He understood that this was a divine opportunity given to Esther to fulfill her purpose in her time. You think it's any different for you? I don't think so. The next thing that we see, besides having this very important essential perspective about our life, is the needful request. Look again at the prayer. Deal bountifully with your servant. The author here is praying a prayer. And this prayer 
could sound a lot like some of our prayers, couldn't it? God, I need a raise. I'm not making enough. I need a little bit more money to enjoy the things I think I should. Would you please get me a better job? God, I need uh, the difficult things in my life to ease up a bit. God, could you please take those away? God, I need more so I can live it up. This prayer may sound like that on the surface. Deal bountifully with me, but it's not that. First of all, it needs to be said that God has already dealt bountifully with all of us, hasn't he? That's where we began. Life itself is from the abundance of God's goodness. It says this in Lamentations 3, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. And then fast forward to the Gospel of John. The author writes, For from his fullness, whose fullness? God's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. We have received so much, the greatest of which is the gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the correct attitude that we must have, the essential perspective that we must have, is that our life, health, finances, jobs, family, intellect, everything comes from the benevolent hand of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did, as if you did not? All the things that we have are gifts from God, everything. And of all those things that we might hope to receive from God, I want to say that having a heart for God is one of the greatest gifts that you can possibly receive. Having a heart for God is not something everyone possesses. What a gift it is from God to have that. You can actually thank God for your desire that he planted in your heart to be here this morning, to be in the fellowship with other saints hearing the word of God. Thank God for a heart for God. The, the psalmist has repeatedly demonstrate, demonstrated this heart. And so now when we come to this particular verse, we know that, that this cannot be a selfish request. Why? Because he has a heart for God. Everything that we have is a result of God's bounty. Some have more, some have less. God has ordained it to be as it is. He has, he has given each as he has desired, um, supplied everything that we have in order to accomplish his purposes in our own immediate experience of human history. Listen to how Luke talks about King David in Acts chapter 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. God had brought David onto the scene to accomplish specific things for the kingdom of God in his day. And so he physically created him in such a way that he could accomplish it. He gifted him in such a way that he would do well at it. He put him in relationships in a geographic region so that he would be the man for the hour. I believe that this is the case with each and every one of us in this room. He has prepared things for you to accomplish 
for his kingdom during your lifetime. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in the second chapter of Ephesians, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are you in Christ? If so, then beforehand, God created a path for you to walk. God has gifted you with your gifts. He has put you in the exact place you are so that you will accomplish those things for his glory and your joy. What a perspective. So you can look at trials and difficulties in the face and say, okay, God, what are we doing here? What are you teaching me? What am I supposed to learn? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to pray for? Who am I supposed to love? Hudson Taylor said, God's work, that thing that's prepared in advance for us to do, done in God's way, in time, never lacks God's supply. He will never put you in a situation that he's going to go, oh man, that was a mismatch. Not going to happen. God's work, done in God's way, never lacks God's supply. This sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian church in chapter 4. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is all true. This perspective thing is true. But I want to I get a little closer to the point, the second point here, which is the needful request. What's, what am I talking about here? Uh, I'm talking about the fact that the author here is actually praying for bounty. This is very important. Um, I, I, I think it's very important. I, I don't want you to miss this obvious needful request. Even though God is sovereign and God orchestrates the details of our lives, we're commanded numerous times in Scripture, including here, to pray. Why? If all this foreordination stuff is true, why pray? Because God also foreordains your prayers. That's why. He uses your prayers to accomplish his will. Praying and asking does two things, at least. It acknowledges the need of the asker, right? You wouldn't pray otherwise. Secondly, it gives God the avenue to perform. You pray, acknowledge your need, God comes to the rescue, he gets the glory, you get your needs met. It's a wonderful relationship that we have. For example, do you need wisdom to raise your children? Do you need wisdom to speak to your boss about something serious? James says to pray to God and ask for wisdom. And so when you wisely raise your children or you appropriately go talk to your boss with godly wisdom, who gets the glory? God does. Because you've prayed and asked for that wisdom. You're acknowledging your need and his ability. How about this? Do you lack courage to share your faith? Paul said, pray that, he, that God would strengthen you for that task. And then when it happens, give him the glory. Do you need spiritual strength to fight your battle with sin? 
Paul said, pray at all times for God's protection and strength in the battle, and when he comes through, you'll give him the glory. There is this needful prayer. Do you want to be uh, successful in navigating the difficulties of the Christian life? You must have an essential perspective, and you must be praying. Thirdly, you must have godly objectives. What are the objectives of the psalmist in this prayer? Was it a request for wealth or ease or avoidance of difficulty? I don't think so. He says, first of all, in the second, second sentence, the second line rather, that I may live, deal bountifully, me, deal bountifully with me, your servant, so that I will live. And he's not just asking for physical life. He's asking for abundant life, bountiful life, if you will. So he's not just acting, asking to survive the day. The this, this, this psalmist desires a life that's, that's worth living, that's attractive. He wants the kind of life that will bring God glory and bring him joy and satisfaction. Leonard Ravenhill asks the question, is, is the life you're living worth Christ dying for? How are you going to live that kind of a life? I think we need to have an essential perspective, prayerful practice, and godly objectives. The psalmist isn't asking for God's bounty so that he can go out and live a selfish life and keep pursuing worldly gain. He isn't asking God to deal bountifully with him so that he can live it up and get rich and have ease and comfort. We see the folly of those kind of requests in James chapter 4. Listen to the, what James says about those kind of requests. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, James calls them. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Notice how James categorizes selfish prayers. Adulterous. Why? Well, what's adultery? Adultery is a violation of a covenant, a breach of trust between two parties. So if we ask God for bounty in order to spend it on selfish ends, it falls into the category of spiritual adultery. That's, that's probably not a request God will grant. And I'm pretty sure of this for the following reason. If Sherry comes to me and asks for $1,000 to run off to Vegas with her new boyfriend, my response would be, no. <laughs> if you're going to go to Vegas with your new boyfriend, it's going to be on your own penny. I'm not paying for it. It's the same way when we come to God. Hey, God, I'm really interested in this new idol. What do you think? Uh, no. You see, the reason God says no, it's because it's a rejection of that essential perspective of master-slave. So the first objective that we see coming out of the heart of this prayerful psalmist is I want to live an abundant life for your glory. So the second follows right on his heels so I can keep your word. 
Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So, so, so what's the reason there's a request for abundant life? He's asking for an increased capacity to know, serve, and obey God. This is what David said in Psalm 118. I shall not die, but I shall live. Why? To recount the deeds of the Lord. Why do you want to live? Is it so that you can spend it all on your own selfish passions? Or to recount the goodness of God to those who need him? It seems to me that the attitude of the psalmist is the same attitude as the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, James, and Jesus himself. Listen how Jesus thought about this whole thing. In John 4, which he said right after he had that divine appointment with the woman at the well, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was the attitude of Jesus. Why did I come to this planet? I was sent to this planet by my Father to accomplish His will, to obey His commands. I think that we're seeing here in verse 17 of Psalm 119 a request for an abundant life so we can make much of God. The request for abundance from God is not a selfish request. I know that it could be, but here it is not. My encouragement to you is that it will not be in your case either. It's a Christ-centered, God-glorifying request, as Paul had in in Philippians chapter 1. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that will with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What a wonderful perspective. What a wonderful prayer. What a wonderful objective. So verse 17 is a request for strength, both physical and spiritual, to serve God with vigor. It's a request for more wisdom so they can serve God more strategically, more effectively. Please, God, for your glory, give me what I need to serve you well, is what the prayer is. This is the heart of my challenge to you this morning. To be able to live the life that's most satisfying and most radical for the glory of God, we must have an essential perspective. We must have regular and needful requests, and we must have the right objectives. And so I want to challenge you this morning not to to seek a long life or a healthy life for the sake of personal comfort, but to seek those very same things, a long life and a healthy life for the cause of Christ. This is where I think we will discover joy and delight and passion and energy for living for him. Deal bountifully with me, your slave, so that I can accomplish all the things that you have planned for me. That's the prayer. Listen to how Paul discuss this with the Roman church. Chapter 14, the one who observes the the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's 
Paul's talking to these two groups of people who are disagreeing on an issue. And Paul's saying the important thing isn't the issue, but the important thing is that you honor God, that your perspective is right, that your objectives are correct. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we die to the Lord. We are the Lord's, rather. So the question I want to ask you, friends, is why are you alive? I know the world is ready to give us all sorts of answers to that question. But why? Forget the world for a second. Why are you alive? If you had to answer that question, I'm alive because, what would you finish that sentence with? Can, can I suggest to you that what the psalmist is teaching us is that we are alive to serve and enjoy God during the few short years that we have on this planet. And friends, they are short. James, again, calls our life a vapor. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Right? The, the thing that I long to hear, the words that will be the most beautiful to my ears on that day when I see Jesus face to face will be this, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that what you want to hear? I know it is in your heart of hearts. Well done, good servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear those words on that day. We want to be the people who serve you wholeheartedly, who pursue holiness, who respond well to trial and difficulty. We, we ask God that you would deal bountifully with us here in this room so that we would be better witnesses, that we would be better husbands, better fathers, better wives, better mothers, better employees, employers. God, we want to show the world how good you are, how abundant you are, how bountiful you treat your people. And so, God, we want to make this verse in Psalm 119, verse 17, our prayer. Deal bountifully here with your servants. That's what our request is, so that we will live in ways that glorify you, so that we will be able to obey and, and follow wholeheartedly for the cause of Christ. That is what we desire. We want to be used by you in the lives of those around us. We want to be a channel of the love of Christ for those who need to hear a word from him. And so, God, we, we leave this with you. And we trust you and we thank you for your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.